Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. This podcast is my service commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous. It strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. My guest on today's podcast is Eileen C., a member of a California group to which I was invited by one of my previous guests on this show. It was one of the best Zoom meetings I've attended. After hearing bits and pieces of Eileen's story, I noticed a common theme I've heard voiced by many members of AA over the years. Tough upbringing punctuated with violence and abuse. Early use of drugs and or alcohol just to survive home life. Difficult and dangerous relationships in adulthood mired by alcoholism of one or both parties. Self-loathing and despair with ideations of suicide. Indeed, Eileen's story looked hopeless. In the end, it took inpatient mental health treatment, private therapy, and the guidance of a good mentor to lead Eileen into 12-step programs, including AA. Even then, she slipped after being sober just 15 months, but came back in just a couple of weeks. Thoroughly beaten by the disease, in early 2009 she came back to AA and finally got down to seriously working the program with a good sponsor. Like my other guests, Eileen's story is cautionary, but quite hopeful for anyone facing the kind of challenges she's faced and overcome. Today she demonstrates her commitment to staying sober by virtue of the service she does with women that she sponsors. Her dedication to AA can also be seen in the role she plays as secretary of the meeting in which we first met. What's more, Eileen practices the principles of the program in her own community by staying actively involved with organizations that address the myriad of mental health issues facing women in need. The importance of Eileen's story cannot be understated. In this 30th interview of my podcast series, I invite you to open your mind and heart for the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Eileen C. I'm Eileen, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Eileen. I'm Hi. glad you could be here. And that's what I usually say in meetings. Hello, how are you? Welcome aboard, and that sort of thing. You know, you and I really don't know each other very well, mm -hmm. but I want to tell you, when my friend here in Houston... Larry E., who did an earlier interview with me, I think he was number 13 in the series, he told me about this group that you're in, and I'm not going to identify it by name because I don't, you know, anybody can hear this, and you may not want the meeting completely overwhelmed with people. So, but I will say this, the Zoom group there out in California that you are a member of, he said, Howard, you got to go to this thing. This Zoom meeting is incredible. So I showed up, and I want to tell you, after one meeting there, I was completely captivated by it. The, the level of sharing and the depth of emotion in that meeting was remarkable. Did you start the Zoom meeting for that group? I did. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what was behind that for you? You know, I think it was really a matter of just being of service. Um, uh -huh. When the pandemic started, um, many of our members were are old timers um, yeah. and also older in age. And mm -hmm. um, quite a number of them were concerned about being out in public during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so 
I, we decided to go ahead and try Zoom out and... Mm -hmm. I was the secretary of that group um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by default, <laughs> just felt yeah. that it was part of my obligation and part of being uh -huh. of service to start the Zoom meeting. And it's really wow. just blossomed into something absolutely remarkable, like you said. Yeah, it is. It's, it's terrific. How long have you been sober? Uh, 12 years. I just took 12 years, April 12th, 2021. So. Wow. So what was going on in your life on April 11th that may have made a big difference in you being here? Well, that was, um, so it was April 12th, 2009. Mm -hmm. um, that specific day was Easter Sunday. Mm. And I had taken a drink after about a year and three months of sobriety. Oh, okay. And I had taken a drink about a week or two before that. Mm -hmm. And just for the next few days after that, I just, I didn't know that I wanted to be back in AA. I didn't know if I really was an alcoholic. I really didn't know if I wanted to work the program again. And mm -hmm. And I woke up on Easter Sunday, and I happened to be Catholic, um, and you know, just felt like I needed a new a renewal. And um, I decided with my sponsor at that time to renew my sobriety, and it became April twelfth that day. That April was when 12th. I decided to step back into the rooms of AA after a couple of weeks out in the <laughs> abyss. <laughs> wow. Mm -hmm. Three days after you went out, or I would say a, it was probably a week and a few a days. Um, okay. I went out and took one big drink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't take uh -huh. any in between, but right. my heart wasn't back in AA, and so so my sobriety date is based on the date that I decided to come back into AA and work the program. Well, that makes it easy to remember what the date is, and the day is because it's Easter, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. it's come, but doesn't Easter come on a different calendar date each it year? It does. It does. So sometimes it's on Easter the day, and sometimes it's on Good Friday? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's on just a different day of the week. So, so wow. the date itself um, just happened to land on Easter Sunday back in 2009. Wow. So you were in AA until you drank that day. You were in AA for a year and three months minus the week that you were out. Was that period of sobriety in AA, was that your first foray at Alcoholics Anonymous? Yes. So my original sobriety date was January 13, 2008. And that was the day I checked into a treatment center. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was taken to AA meetings as part mm -hmm. of my program and treatment at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and was sober. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't um, taking anything. And so that was my original date. And I had a sponsor when I came out of the treatment center. I went to mm -hmm. meetings regularly. Um, I was working the steps. But I, I, I don't think I had really conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. And really? so... I had um, hit a rough patch it, with my boyfriend at the time. We had a big uh -huh. breakup and, um, uh -huh. you know, that was generally what I drank over to begin with. And uh -huh. that's uh -huh. what I relapsed over. Oh, my. Okay. You were in the recovery center. You were going to AA meetings. You weren't totally vested in AA at that point, it doesn't sound like. 
Uh, but you had a sponsor. Was mm-hmm. that the same sponsor who you came back to after a year and three months? Yes. Okay, because sometimes in treatment centers and sober houses, people get temporary sponsors or, or people who don't end up being there long term, but it's always cool when they are. Mm-hmm. So when you went into the treatment center, my guess is things had gotten bad enough for you that you needed to go into a treatment center. Is that a safe statement? Yes. And I, I know that uh-huh. there's, you know, our tradition and the primary purpose for Alcoholics yes. Anonymous. But for uh-huh. me, I was introduced to um, the 12-step program in Alcoholics mm-hmm. Anonymous by way of the primary addiction that I was in treatment for. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. really, it's founded on the principles and steps of AA. So It's always good to see people from AA going to some of the other 12-step programs. It's always helpful when a AA member comes in you know, co-addicted, but that's what we are. We're co-addicted. Mm-hmm. I was co-addicted to alcohol and drugs. Right. And I used drugs alcoholically and I drank uh, like a drug addict. And so mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't make any difference why you're there as long as you, you get what you need. So while you were in the treatment center, you were there for one thing. And were they, did they have to convince you that you might also be an alcoholic or, or did you already know that when you went in? Um, I had to be convinced I was an alcoholic. Really? In terms of volume of alcohol, I uh-huh. at that time I didn't think it was very much, and mm-hmm. um, I've since learned over the years that it's not about the volume. Um, it mm-hmm. certainly has been how I drank and what I drank over. Mm-hmm. What I've since learned about myself is that alcohol was simply a means to an end for me. When I look at how I drank, it was with the primary purpose of destroying my life. And, you know, Hmm. and I don't think most normal people drink that way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they they drink to have a great time and maybe let loose a little bit. But, you know, my, my drinking was a lot different than that. Really? So you went in with that being the kind of drinking that you did on top of the other issue or issues that, that were showing up in your life at that time Mm -hmm. was, Drinking for you always like that, that destroying of life feature, or was there ever a time when drinking was something that was uh, fun and enjoyable and that you could do all you wanted and never have a problem? I think that part of how I know I'm an alcoholic is that I absolutely Uh hated how it tasted. I never met (laughs) an alcoholic drink that I loved, (laughs) Uh Yeah, but I drank it anyway. I see. Um, And so it was always generally in social settings. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think I took my first drink till I turned 21 Hmm. on my 21st Hmm. birthday. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in a family. Both my parents don't drink alcohol, not because Mm -hmm. they're sober or in any kind of program that just isn't part of their lifestyle. So they didn't drink with um, alcohol at family parties or Mm -hmm. dinners Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Not even, you know, toasting champagne uh, at New Year's. That just wasn't Uh part of our our family life. Uh You know, I drank socially, but I found myself looking for excuses to be out with Yeah. friends and occasions to drink. And it was usually because I was angry and wanted to let loose. Uh-huh. But I would I would always find a social setting to do that. Yeah, I get that. So there wasn't any uh, drinking going on in your family. You know, n- neither of my parents drank either, mm-hmm. uh, but there was plenty of mental illness in the family. I mean, from 
certifiable clinical depression. My my maternal grandmother was institutionalized uh, mm. after she had postpartum, which turned out to be at the time they they weren't terming it that, and so she got she was in Bellevue Hospital in New York City for you know, from a certain time until the end of her life. So they, there wasn't any drinking, but there was enough other stuff going on. What was your What was your family like in that regard? No drinking, but other things. Yeah. So I'm first generation. I was born in the Philippines, first generation uh -huh. um, growing up here in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, so my parents immigrated here when I was very, very young. Yeah. Um, I was raised by multiple members of my family. So we were living maybe 10, 15 people in one three bedroom house. And so I had uh, members of my family who were surrogate parents. Um, I see. Yeah. And my dad, who followed us, immigrated years after we came here. Um, oh, uh -huh. He was a bit of a stranger when when he finally immigrated here, a stranger uh -huh. to me. Yeah. Um, but he had a tremendous amount of rage and anger issues. And yeah, definitely yeah. took out his resentment about having to leave his life in the Philippines to immigrate here with my mom and her family and just took it out on my brother and I, um, oh. um, you know, physically and emotionally. And it was a uh, uh, tumultuous upbringing. I'll bet. I'll mm -hmm. bet. How old were you when, when that started? Um, I have memories as far back as when I was three years old. So he came back in your early toddlerhood or childhood. You know. Yeah, he he was back um, consistently in my life when I was about five years old. Um, but uh -huh. I remember a time living in the Philippines. And those are my, my earlier memories were when we were living in the Philippines for a short period of time. You know, I don't think there's any coincidence in that most of my interviews, there's always somebody and something I can identify with because my dad was a rager too. And I spent the majority of my childhood going like this mm -hmm. to, and I was all, you know, that didn't do much to, to ease the physical and uh, verbal and other, other kinds of abuse. But mm -hmm. whenever it is, I want to draw a line back in my past to see where Where's the connection with later behavior? It always goes back to my dad being a rager and then my mom being completely emotionally unavailable. So even though he was doing things that an emotional woman as a mother would object to and find a way out of, she didn't. So he right. was he was unleashed. Right. Uh, fortunately, I had an older brother and sister who got the brunt of it, but it's still... Uh, it, it, I know what I thought when I was a kid about what was going on. What did you, what did that little five-year-old brain tell you was going on back then? You know, from a very early age, and I don't know where this came from other than mm -hmm. that perhaps it was my higher power um, mm -hmm. even then watching over yeah. me, right? I just always thought that what he was doing was wrong, but that mm. he didn't know any better. I hmm. don't know where that comes from and wow. how it is that that was so far back, you know, and maybe it was family members who would tell me, you know, he, he loves all of you. He just, this yeah. is just how he yeah. is. This is just how our family is. And I was I told from a very early age that, you know, we just had to deal with it. Hmm. 
And mm. so I think a lot of what I did was rationalize a lot of what was happening from from a very young age. Yeah, that's such a mature, uh, beyond a five-year-old's comprehension when you start thinking about he doesn't know any better and, you know, perhaps he... He's a person with a problem. Uh, I mean, my my response early on was, I must be doing something wrong, and and so we blame ourselves from an early age. But you had a very mature outlook on that, I guess, huh? Well, that's not to say that I didn't also think that something was wrong with me. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I that get was that. that was definitely um, ingrained and told to me. I mean, some of the things I distinctly remember were, you know, as a child being compared to the family dog in a bad way, you know, in the sense that, you know, the dog's smarter than you. And, um, you know, I love the dog more, the dog knows better what to do than you do. And um, so, you know, I I got a lot of these messages, Mm -hmm. sort of subliminally, I guess. uh, Yeah. And also very directly. So that's tough. That's tough. That amounts to, in my mind, and I've always felt this way since being sober, and even before um, child abuse. And mm-hmm. and there's no other there's no other uh, there's no other term for it. I'm I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Mm-hmm. So you. when you were a kid, uh, you said you didn't start drinking until you were 21. Was that because you were hanging with people who didn't drink, or you didn't have the opportunity? What was it like for you in school? Let's say going through grammar school up through middle and high school what what kind of uh what kind of student were you and and what was going on in your social life that might have predicted that somewhere down the road you'd become an alcoholic sure so i learned very early on to put a different face on in uh-huh. public yeah and not talk about what was happening at home uh-huh. Uh, so I was an outstanding student. Um, I was yeah. very involved at school, um, in elementary. I was, you know, in student council, involved in being student body president. I was student mm-hmm. body president of my elementary, my middle school, <laughs> you know, editor in chief in high school. Um, you know, so I was an overachiever in that sense, right? I, I, I and part of that was I, I wanted to prove that I wasn't the bad kid that my dad was telling me that I was. Um, and I think there was a point where I realized that it didn't matter that Uh I was getting these good grades. Uh It wasn't going to change the home life. And so sort of that rebellious streak came out. And so I was still getting good grades, but then I was starting to hang out with groups of people who were, um, involved in smoking marijuana. So I remember, Mm -hmm. I, I didn't take my first drink till I was 21, but I was exposed to, to other substances and marijuana was that. Okay. And so I would stay late after school under the guise of extra projects we were working on because uh-huh. I was really involved in extracurricular activities, but was really in the handball courts smoking <laughs> smoking pot <laughs> through a through a Coca-Cola can, you know. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> you know it was that that this was my story. And and then as I moved um into high school Um, I became really disenchanted with, you know, getting the good grades and sitting in in classrooms and teachers really not even knowing what was happening at home. And, um, and so how I dealt with that is I just ditched a lot of school. So I was still 
maintaining high grades, but I missed half of high school because I just was, I I just Mm -hmm. wanted to be away. And Mm -hmm. um, school, in a lot of ways, was an escape from home. It was, uh, you know, summertime was the worst time because that meant we spent a lot of time at home. We weren't really allowed to do anything in between. Uh Um, school was my escape. And then when I got older, I learned that I could escape from school and really escape to do whatever I wanted. And so I would, I would, you know, just hang out at friends' houses Uh or I remember a time going to Knott's Berry Farm. (laughs) I don't know how it is. I didn't get caught, but that's, that's sort of what I did. And then uh, was able to go to college. I, uh, still had maintained a pretty good GPA and yeah. Went to college and, you know, I think I strongly believe that God had his hand on my shoulder that entire time. And Mm -hmm. my path led me to a nonprofit organization specifically for young Mm -hmm. women who had been through a similar background Mm -hmm. or the kind of background that I had had. And that organization Mm -hmm. was founded by a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was his way of being of service uh-huh. and giving back to his community. Mm-hmm. That scholarship program um, basically saved my life and my family. And I think that was also the hand of AA hmm. because it was founded by a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got through school. They got me through school and put me in therapy. And that was really my gateway to 12-step recovery my gateway to mental health, my gateway to um, that treatment center that I ended up going to, my gateway to reconciling with my family, really. So That nonprofit that you were involved in, how long were you involved with them? I was their client for about three years. Um, Mm, I, mm -hmm. you know, came into contact with them, believe in the in my sophomore year of college. I see. Uh-huh. Um, and they took me all the way through uh, my graduation from from college. And um, uh-huh. an anonymous donor to that program mm-hmm. anonymously sponsored me through my treatment. Oh, cool. So I, that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I got to have. And, and, you know, I think there were several angels that were placed in my path that really just made a tremendous impact. Yeah. You know, your your story is just interwoven with God moments. I just, Lots of God moments. Uh, you know, kind of gives me goosebumps thinking <laughs> about that. Because especially when we look back and look at the things and we say, wow, what good luck I had. My perspective has been changed by AA and the spirituality of it all to say, mm-hmm. oh, God was really looking out for me that day. Mm-hmm. Or, man, talk about a guardian angel. And uh, sounds like you had it. I did. I did. And, oh, wow. yeah, so that, that program, um, you know, was a direct result, I think, of, of AA's impact on the founder's life. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was able to give back and continue to be of service to that program for the next 10 years. I was on their board of directors um, from the time I graduated wow. from it. And, you know, they, they've helped uh, several women, uh, over 250 women now have gone through that program. Wow. 
and many of them sober and not all of them um, were because of, you know, uh, drug related or alcohol reasons. Mm -hmm. My particular path was that I had no knowledge of 12 step recovery or alcoholism or anything like that until that program entered my life. So that's amazing. Uh, You mentioned that you were a pot smoker when you were in uh, in high school and I would assume through college, as was I. I. I never really started drinking until I was out of high school, but smoked a lot of grass over the years. Were you a habitual pot smoker or recreational or were you using marijuana alcoholically when you look back? I was using marijuana the same way I was using alcohol, which was, it was my form of rebellion. It was my form of saying, I have control over this and I can do this. Hmm. I I don't know if I necessarily did it excessively. I did it as an escape Mm -hmm. and primarily in social settings. So it was always, you know, to fit in and because there were people around that were doing it and I wanted to belong. To something else, yeah. right? I wanted to belong so, to something, and and so that was partly why I smoked pot. But it wasn't something that I did, you know. I I never even actually knew how people got a hold of marijuana. <laughs> I just <laughs> always ended up in a situation where it was already there, and hey, somebody had it. <laughs> I don't know who oh to contact. I'm that kind of alcoholic. I don't know who to contact to get the goods, but somehow I got it. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Wow. Well, that was always the case for me too. I, but eventually I found people who sold it and it was always good. Of course, you know, my thinking was that if pot had been legal in Colorado when I was in college, I would have moved there just because of that. Mm. I mean, job or no job, whatever, because uh, that's the kind of pot smoker I was too. Uh, now, the group of people you were smoking pot with, sounds like you sailed through high school and college academically pretty strong, despite using marijuana and uh, alcohol, let's say, to a lesser extent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did the fact that you were able to still excel academically help convince yourself that you couldn't possibly have a problem with any of this because look at how well you did in school? Absolutely. <laughs> really? I, I think uh-huh. that... I mean, it just goes back to the addiction part of my story where the destruction began. I see. And it was the impact on my life um, Mm -hmm. was most negative because of the addiction. And I did a lot of the drinking and, and, you know, um, the drinking and destroying is what I would always refer to it as. I did a lot of drinking and Mm -hmm. destroying as a result. And so um, I would say most of my bottom was the emotional upheaval that it was causing me and the the darkness that I was living in day in and day out. Mm -hmm. And that was sometimes because of alcohol consumption or marijuana, but most of the time it was just a combination of all of those things. Um, yeah, yeah. And the addictions driving it all. You had the marijuana and alcohol. It doesn't sound like they necessarily supported that, but what was the relationship then between the, the grass and the booze with the other addiction? I think part of it is I'm still uncovering all of this. Um, and discovering it. Yeah, I think I that um, mm-hmm. I did a lot of escaping from mm-hmm. the destructiveness of the relationships that I was in. I was in a lot of toxic relationships mm-hmm. um, 
or Mm -hmm. just felt a tremendous amount of neediness and um, Mm -hmm. abandonment that, and I couldn't handle those emotions and feelings. And the way that I Mm -hmm. could Mm -hmm. handle it or express it was by going out and drinking and partying my Mm. night away five nights a week Mm -hmm. or, you know, spending time with a whole bunch of people that I hardly knew who were smoking and drinking. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to be a part of that because I, I was feeling Mm -hmm. so overwhelmed by feelings of neediness and abandonment and entanglements in these toxic relationships. Mm. Um, and there was no outlet Mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I just those those were very entangled for me, all three areas yeah. of addiction. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who receives no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. Were the relationships that you had that ended up turning toxic, were they outgrowths of your relationships with other people within the framework of the smoking and the drinking? Or were they separately created? Or was there a mix? It was definitely a mix. So I was Uh alcohol and marijuana to a smaller degree, It allowed for me to be in situations that were increasingly dangerous. I see. Um, So, Uh you know, I was encountering more and more people who were violent and just Mm. uh, toxic. And I think by way of being out every night Mm. um, at a bar or a club, Mm -hmm. I was encountering these people and Mm -hmm. I was constantly seeking something to fill myself um, and if I couldn't yeah, find that yeah. in a in a man necessarily, then I just increased the alcohol consumption, or I just increased the amount of time I was going out. And I was out with a different group of people all the time. Really. And so I would say ninety five percent of my friends that I grew up with would tell you uh-huh. I was not an alcoholic, and they to this day. Oh are bewildered by the fact that I continue to work a program of recovery and maintain sobriety when they're like, I don't understand how you didn't even, you were always our designated driver. (laughs) 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 But that was the manipulation of my alcoholism. That was my alcoholism in play. They don't get it either. I mean, we understand that. And I always have to be very, very careful. Well, earlier on in my sobriety, I had to be very, very careful being around people who I used to drink with because left alone with them, they would find all kinds of reasons why I wasn't an alcoholic. My disease would chip in and support that notion. And then the only thing I had to protect me was my program. So in a lot of cases, it was like a two on one Mm -hmm. situation. So I had to... 
I had to disabuse myself of some of those those people. Now, you were hanging out with different groups. Was there a reason why, just because you wanted a, a broad social sphere, or were there other reasons why you would hang around with so many different groups of people? Well, I was naturally inclined um, in terms of being of service. I was always naturally inclined to be of service. I see. And I think part of that, too, was, again, extracurricular activities. Okay were my way to stay out of the house and yeah, to stay away yeah. from, at that time, my dad primarily. I see, yeah. You know, it was my way to stay away from home. And sure. so my life was filled with all of these extracurricular activities and groups. And I was very active in my church. Wow. And so there was a group of um, friends that I hung out with from church. And so they would go out and drink and I was, mm-hmm. you know, the... I played that role really well. And then I had my group of friends that I went out from with that I met in college. And then there was um, Uh the group of friends that I grew up with and went through elementary and middle school Uh and high school with. And and Uh so there were just these different Uh circles of people and who all saw only a part of who I was. And I think I was Hmm. conditioned that way by way of my upbringing. Yeah, yeah. It really wasn't until many years in Alcoholics Anonymous that I was able to put all the pieces together. And so now what you see is what you get. And it's all of Eileen. Right? So this is who it is. And, and, and I love that about you because from the very first time I met you and you conducted the meeting, I got the sense that you were an organizer, that you were a pivotal point in the workings of the group. People who have that in their personalities, it comes out. You always know who's really in charge and who's Without them there, things are just going to be a little bit off kilter. So that is absolutely, in my estimation, a a beautiful trait to have. Thank you. So we're talking about, uh, let's see, what ages are we talking about here where all this is going on with these destructive relationships, the, uh, the drinking, the pot use, the partying and all that? What is the time frame look like for that? Sure. So the pot use started when I was maybe 14. Okay. Uh-huh. And I did it very intermittently and sparingly over the years. It just happened to be whenever I was with certain groups of people. That's that's when it came up. I didn't necessarily seek it out myself to do it by myself. Mm-hmm. I get it. And so that continued on sparingly through college. Um, and I mentioned earlier, I took my first drink when I was 21. And I was um, mm-hmm. in treatment and first got completely sober when I was 23. So it was about two years of destructive drinking and a destructive lifestyle. And I've heard, um, you know, in meetings from different people, and I think it's talked about in the big book that, you know, women experience alcoholism at a much faster rate. And I, that was certainly my experience. I did, in a lot of ways, um, have a high bottom because I, I hadn't lost face yet with, uh, at school and with mm-hmm. friends. And certainly my family didn't even know that I was doing any of this. Um, I played that role of uh, multiple lives really well. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't lost a lot of things. And in a lot of ways, you know, yeah. um, school was still going well. I was still known as being put together. Sure. 
Yeah, but it was the waking up every day and wanting to die and not wanting to be alive uh. was um, the catalyst for me. That was my bottom. For me, it was drinking a bottle of alcohol. It was a bottle of vodka that I didn't even like. I didn't even, I hated the taste of vodka. And mm -hmm. sitting on the sure. floor and literally banging my head against the wall to get a concussion. Oh, my. Because I wanted it all to be quiet. Um, it was that kind yeah. of inner turmoil. That's what I did behind closed doors. You know, that's what my alcoholism mm -hmm. looked like. Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. the disease looked like for me. Yeah. You said there that you had a not so deep of a bottom. I think any time we want to kill ourselves, I don't see any bottoms any deeper than that. You're right. Mm -hmm. Whether we're leaving this planet from a mansion or, or a shack, that's still a very, very difficult thing to reconcile. So would you say your higher power just wasn't ready for you to do that at the time? Or what was your... What were you thinking about wanting to do that at the time? What was going through your mind? I just felt tremendously worthless. I just felt mm. worthless. Mm -hmm. And that there wasn't anything yeah. I could do to get the relationships right, um, mm -hmm. to have the favor of my family and fix all of yeah. that. Um Mm -hmm. I just mm -hmm. felt worthless and unlovable. And I just didn't have it in me to keep fighting. Yeah. Um, at least I didn't think I did. Yeah. That was that moment sitting on the floor. I remember that pretty vividly sitting on the floor and, mm -hmm. and you know, knocking my head against the wall. That was a moment where mm -hmm. I knew that it didn't matter how much alcohol I had already had no amount of alcohol was going to be enough to make it better. And that was when it became scary. Mm. And when I realized that alcohol meant death for me because I was going to continue to drink more mm. and it was never going to be enough. I knew that in my, in my soul. Mm. So alcohol was going to be your slow road to suicide. Yep. The day that mm. I was, <laughs> I was actually kicked out of that treatment center in Arizona. And oh, I was, no. I had been there for nearly three months and had been sentenced to much mm -hmm. longer than that <laughs> sentenced, right? Quote unquote sentenced mm -hmm. to much longer than Sentence, that. Yeah. And I couldn't stick to the rules that were, um, suggested to me. And I was on a three strike contract. Mm-hmm. I was still very honest about that. I said, well, I broke my third strike. <laughs> I hit my third yeah. strike. And, and so I was asked to leave and given an hour to pack my bags and go. Yeah. Other than wow. my mentor, who happened to be the founder of that nonprofit, um, and my therapist at the time, mm -hmm. no one knew where I really was. And no one knew that I had been kicked out. And mm -hmm. I remember vividly mm. on the drives when they would take us in the van to the AA meetings outside of the center. I, mm -hmm. I distinctly mm -hmm. remember on the road right. to those meetings that there was a Motel 8 and a liquor store next door. And so when I got kicked out, my best mm. plan in that moment was to have the driver 
instead of taking me to the airport, have me taken to the liquor store where I would buy as much alcohol as I could. And my plan was to drown myself in alcohol um, and die in the Motel 8 next door. That was my plan at the age of 23. Mm. Wow. And, you know, by the grace of God, and somehow made my way back to California and into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. God, that's amazing. So, um, hmm, how difficult that must have been. The, the feeling when you got booted out, did that just exacerbate feelings that you already were having, or did, did that create all kinds of new feelings? I think it did both. That was absolutely the fork in the road because I, I had yeah. resigned myself to hmm. die in that motel. Hmm. And the mm-hmm. map to that was made very clear. That was maybe my higher power one more time stepping in and literally grabbing me by my collar and pulling me out of that situation yeah. um, by way of sober members of the community. And that was my mentor and my therapist who basically just sat me down and said, you know, just come home and then we'll figure out what we do next. And then I was just asked to, I was in therapy every day for the next um, month after that and in an AA meeting every day after that. And that's actually how I ended up finding that meeting that has become my home group and oh, that's cool. the Zoom meeting that, that you and I met in. So, mm-hmm. When you mention that, you really light up. I can tell that that has a very special place in your heart. When you came back to California from that experience, that was right around the time you first got sober, right, in AA. Mm-hmm. Yes. You had a very concentrated period, a couple of years of some really horrendous thinking and and experiences that three months in a treatment center didn't fix necessarily. You came back to AA. What were your first meetings of, of AA like when you, I know you had been while you were in treatment, but now on your own, having been asked to leave treatment, what did AA look like to you in the beginning? I think it was just at that point, I had no other choice. There was, there was no other choice, right? Uh, yeah. I didn't have any yeah. plans beyond that day that I had planned to be in that motel. Yeah. So I literally mm. just did mm-hmm. what my therapist and my mentor told me to do. I was going to a mixture of mm-hmm. meetings, and so I just dove in. That's how I mm-hmm. came to have that sponsor who continued to sponsor me through my relapse. Mm-hmm. And I just would show up to meetings. You know, I, I cried through every <laughs> single meeting because I just, it was just so overwhelming to still Mm. be alive when I had planned otherwise. And I Mm. literally was loved until I could love myself. Mm -hmm. I I think we hear that a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I really was loved through until I could love myself. Yeah, that's an extraordinary benefit of the program that we get the love that we can't possibly feel for ourselves mm-hmm. from others to support us until we can start loving ourselves. I, I, I get that. So in your early meetings, do you remember the first time that somebody shared that you said, that's me? Every time we read out of the big book. And most certainly when the story of the jaywalker was read, I very much identify with oh. the jaywalker in the big book that constant running out Mm. into the street and getting 
getting hit and run over and, and doing it all over again. Yeah, and still thinking it's not going to happen the next time until it actually does. Yep. So you were going to therapy. You were going to a meeting every day. Mm-hmm. Did you have that God identification early on in the program when you saw God in the steps? How did you feel when you first saw that? Like I said, I was always involved pretty heavily at church. I wasn't necessarily religious. I, I was just heavy in being of service. But I went to church regularly and had this concept of God. Mm-hmm. I believe that my relationship with God has evolved and changed over the years. Most of the first few years of my sobriety, it was I believed in God. Mm-hmm. I believe that God worked for you and worked for AA and worked for everyone else around me. Mm-hmm. but that I was still viewing God from the eyes of that little girl who was worthless and unlovable. So I always kind of thought that there was a God and yeah. God knew me, but I was a little bit off to the side and a little bit forgotten. Uh, I've since learned that <laughs> my God mm-hmm. is much, much bigger than that and loves me far, far more than that. And, yeah. you know, but that was through the step work. So the concept of God and higher power didn't scare me when I came into the rooms. Um, And what Mm -hmm. AA has done for me, it's like I've got this whole new idea and concept of God that AA gave me permission to have. Yeah. Right. It was always there, but I didn't know that I could. And AA said you could. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's a beautiful realization. The turning point that you're talking about, you were feeling like an outsider uh, with a viewpoint that was based on a five-year-old's thinking and feelings. Do you remember where you were or what, what actually happened? Uh, was it a sudden upheaval or was it just gradual and you turned around one day and said, wow, I really feel it? I get choked up every time I, I think about this. The moment that my dad and I reconciled... Um, in my Mm. eyes, is a complete and utter miracle, the way it happened. And that Mm. was that moment when Mm. I knew that God was on my side. That was the moment, because I couldn't have planned that any other way. The catalyst that pushed me into that scholarship program was an incident of an upheaval with my dad one more time, but it was a defining moment where... You know, I finally stood up for myself and um, and he looked me in the eye Mm -hmm. and I I remember him standing in my bedroom doorway and said, I'm coming after you. I'm going to kill you. That Mm -hmm. was the last time I had spoken to him and I was afraid of him um, from that moment on. And I just never Mm -hmm. imagined that there could be any kind of reconciliation after that. But I I remember my grandfather at the time calling me on my father's birthday to ask if I had contacted my dad to greet him happy birthday. And I thought, why in the heck would I do that? Mm -hmm. Sure. (laughs) He wants to kill me. (laughs) Yeah, your grandfather knew what was going on, though, didn't he? They all did. Yeah, they uh, all all of the family knew what was happening. They all did, okay. They didn't know the degree Mm -hmm. of trauma that it was causing. Yeah. 
And so, you know, culturally it was just like, well, he's your dad. You just respect your elders, you know, and, and suck it up and, and call him and Mm -hmm. greet him a happy birthday. And I was like, oh dear God, (laughs) like no way. (laughs) And, and he said, if you can't do it for your dad, will you do it for me? And I did. Um, I called Mm. my dad and what I've since learned is that that day he had gone to church for the first time since that incident where um, he had threatened me and um, asked, was asking in his prayers for us to reconcile our relationship and he had not shared that with anyone. That was just his own silent prayer. I think he had reached a point where he was done. Mm-hmm. And um, my grandfather being my mm. grandfather, my mom's dad, not my father's dad, um, just happened to, right. you know, uh-huh. he had been wanting to see reconciliation. And on his own volition mm-hmm. called me and said, you know, take a leap of faith and, and just call him on my behalf. And I did that. And uh-huh. on my dad's end, he thought his prayer had been answered because I'm calling out of the blue. And on my end, wow. my dad's voice was a completely, it was a different person on the other end of the line. And, um, there was softness mm. and love and, mm. you know, this doorway to something different. And, um, Hmm. and I, so I called him Mm -hmm. and said, happy birthday, um, reluctantly. And her, and he said, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Are you, if you're not doing anything, I'd love for you to come over. And Hmm. when I, I did, I came over, I had a friend come with me because I, I I even told my friend, I said, I need you to drop me off and just kind of sit there with the car running. Yeah. Yeah. If I start running out the door, it's because something went wrong. Open the door and we, we leave. You know, um, it was that kind of fear. But I came over wow. and my dad apologized yeah. and, you know, we reconciled. We reconciled mm. that day. That wow. was the moment that I knew God existed in a whole different kind of way for me than, than he had ever that's an extraordinary story, and the timing and the the coincidence, uh, where, you know, where God is concerned, there's probably no coincidences. But so, were you at your eighth and ninth step? I mean, were you were you at the point of understanding what it was that you might need to do with regard to the stuff that had happened? No. Had you processed any of the fourth or fifth step along the way, or were you just not at that point yet? I was not at that point yet. The uh-huh. steps for me helped me to not run away from reconciling, yeah. maintaining that reconciliation. Because there was a lot of healing sure. that still needed sure. to happen. So that reconciliation happened before I got yeah, to I'm those sure. steps. But when I got wow. through those steps, I became more open to maintaining and building that reconciliation so that I could have a life in a relationship with my dad. It what it like the reconciliation didn't stop there in the sense that mm-hmm. for 20 plus years my father and I barely spoke. We were like strangers and I was a punching bag. 
And so we really mm-hmm. hadn't built a relationship. Right. And then when we reconciled, it was nice to hear for the first time in my life that my dad loved me, but we didn't have a foundation to build yeah. from um, beyond that. And hmm. I sincerely believe mm-hmm. that the steps in the program helped me to have to, to have the space to, to do all of that. Hmm. So in the 12 years since you got sober, and certainly I'm sure since the day of that reconciliation with your dad, what's that relationship been like? And, and did it really improve dramatically or was it more gradual? How, what did that look like? Our relationship improved dramatically. I mean, um, yeah. You know, I, I, my dad is not necessarily my best friend, but we're pretty darn close, you know, and, and, um, we lean on each other quite a bit now. Um, and I really do feel like I've got a dad Hmm. (laughs) and that is dramatically different from my dad essentially disowning me and, and threatening to kill me. He has Hmm. become a different person. Hmm. Our family has become a different family mm-hmm. as a result of all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about feelings and fears. <laughs> we talk about challenges. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've been able to mm-hmm. lean on each other through, um, you know, my mom's illness. I was my dad's primary caretaker when he became very, very sick with COVID. Mm. And everything we talk about and all of our interactions now, it just wouldn't be possible. Hmm. I would still hmm. probably be very resentful about everything that's, that had happened in the past. And because yeah. of the step work, we've been able to amend our relationship. Uh, and there isn't that blockage yeah. there. It's just we get to make our relationship what we want it to be today. And it's been very beautiful. That's a wonderful demonstration of the program in action. Sounds to me, too, like you brought a good program to your family. Were any other members of your family involved in 12-step? No, but I got to 12-step my brother. Really? (laughs) Yeah, so he's he's had his own share of demons and his own way of dealing with how we grew up. And, you know, I Uh get to pray for him like any other person that, you know, we we hope will someday make it to the rooms. Sure. But I, I got to be there when he needed to reach a handout. Yeah. So these last 12 years... Sounds to me like some of the gifts you were experiencing really pretty early on in that period of time. What other things have have occurred in your life over the past 12 years that were like seminal moments or points at which you you look at and say, there again, God did, did for me what I couldn't do for myself, or by God's grace, I got through that. Gosh, we wouldn't have enough time to go through all of those. <laughs> but I. Yeah. It sounds like the COVID was one of them, though. COVID was a big one. And also, being sober hasn't made life perfect. Sure. It certainly has still had its roller coasters. And I still s- struggled with toxic relationships. And I had been in a toxic relationship uh, for about three years. So from my ninth year of sobriety into more most recently, I was in a toxic relationship mm. that 
you know, turn mm-hmm. my world upside down. And mm-hmm. through that experience, I was, uh, I experienced going to jail, um, mm-hmm. sober and I had mm-hmm. to walk through that sober. Mm-hmm. You know, that was God doing for me what I could not do for myself. I had hit an emotional bottom Mm -hmm. Um, in physical Mm -hmm. sobriety. That just was my experience. I think that I had not completely turned everything over to my higher power. Yeah. In terms of relationships, that was one of the things I was still holding on to that I think I could handle and manage on my own. Yeah. And, you know, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself and pulled me out. Yeah, isn't it amazing how we try and reclaim the power once we feel like it's ours again? Mm-hmm. The illusion is that at some point, God does the great cosmic handoff to us. Like, okay, God, I can take it from here. Thank you very much. And so you hit an emotional bottom within sobriety while you were active in the program, active in service. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sponsor women. Yep. I sponsor women. You were sponsoring women. I know I've had some things within my sobriety and one, one event right smack dab in the middle at about 16 years that happened that was, I like to say, it was like the rug got pulled out from me. And as I was going down, I was getting hit in the side of the head with a two by four. It was that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was so emotionally devastating that I think that had I not been doing all the meetings that I did, sponsoring all the men that I sponsor, talking to a sponsor who was having me pray all the time. And I feel like I just barely got through it. And I'm thinking, God, all of those things that I was doing, and I still just barely got through it. Did you feel that way at any point? I did. You know, I think for me, for the majority of my sobriety, I was working two programs. Uh And in the midst of this toxic relationship, Mm -hmm. I couldn't find solution in that other program. I'm not, you know, talking negatively about that other program. I just know my experience was I I wasn't getting out of my situation. And I dove in even deeper into AA and worked Uh my AA program much differently and harder than I had before. And shared, Mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. more vulnerably in my meetings and reached out more heavily Mm -hmm. and was of service more heavily in AA. And I think that was Mm. the sole sole reason why I was able to come out of that without taking a drink um, or doing anything else, Uh really. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I see, I know what my part is in all of that situation. I'm certainly not um, just a victim in all of it, you Mm -hmm. know, the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous allowed me to, to see that. So Mm. I'm, I'm able to look at that whole situation as a gift. It absolutely was God doing for me what I could not do for myself. Um, you know, I couldn't have gotten out of that relationship if things didn't happen exactly as they did. And I'm able to see to Mm -hmm. what, what my side of the street looks like and not live in shame over it. I'm right sized about the situation. And yeah. I think uh, the program yeah. allows me to be right-sized about it. You know, what's beautiful about what you just said is that it is kind of a framework or a blueprint for other people, let's say even other women, to look at somebody going through what you went through and you got through it and you stayed sober. When I went through that thing at 16 years, I had a group of men, including sponsees 
and others who gathered around me like a like a cocoon. It's like all of my decisions were wrong at that time because I was so devastated by the event that my thinking wasn't clear and they had to do the thinking for me. Did you have a group of women like that in your life when this when this went on? I did. And that group, I still go to that meeting now. It's a it's my um all women's home group as well as the oh, Zoom group that you've now come to know. You know, I just bring it as it is. Mm. I experienced a lot of um turmoil internally. Um, and I, and I sure. just didn't know where else to take it, but I was able to safely take it to AA and, and I had people who held me through all of that. Yeah. I just, I don't know how else I could have gotten through that relationship. Um, you know, this was a yeah. person who was staunchly against Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 step recovery, just didn't understand yeah. it. And yeah, in a lot of ways made him my higher power, even though I was working a program. And I think what it taught me is that my program and my sobriety must come first and that my higher power is bigger than him and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. That is a huge nugget of wisdom. The gift is when you're telling that story or bits and pieces of it, or somebody's even listening to this interview and saying, my God, I, I get it. You're having to go through what you went through. We'll save somebody somewhere at some time. We just never, never know. So even the worst situations, you get that kind of that nugget of wisdom. Well, we're going to wrap up here. I want to ask you if there have been within your sobriety any gift that you didn't expect or something that happened within that time that you look to and say, I'm so glad I was in AA and I can see the connection now that I have with my higher power as a result of that involvement. I am in a relationship now. I healthy, oh, yeah. beautiful relationship with a fine man oh, congratulations. that I would not have been equipped for or mm-hmm. emotionally available for had it not been mm-hmm. for Alcoholics Anonymous. And most certainly the relationship with my entire family now. Yeah. The day-to-day experiences with my family as they are now Mm. are all things I would have missed if Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't in my life. Mm. Mm. Well, that's a beautiful way to kind of wrap things up here, Eileen. I so appreciate your doing this and your willingness to become vulnerable and to lay out what AA is really about, because the stuff we're talking about today is really serious, serious stuff, but it's got some really beautiful outcomes along the way if we're willing to wait that five minutes for the miracle. And you're doing this for me today means a lot to me. I love you and I appreciate your involvement and your willingness to be of service. And many, many thanks for doing this, Eileen. You're terrific. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Eileen C. for sharing her story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media channels? You see, I'm pretty good at staying sober, but not so good at social media. I know there are many alcoholics out there who could benefit from this podcast if they only knew about it. 
so anything you can do to help will be greatly appreciated. That includes telling sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Everyone can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. And please join the AA Recovery Interviews Facebook group where our fellowship gathers online. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.